Grab your Bibles. We are in Proverbs chapter 14. We made it down to verse 27 last week. So we're going to pick it up. We're going to finish the chapter and keep moving forward as the Lord allows. And one of the things as you're turning there that I want to encourage you in as God is almost like got our church almost starting back over like we did early uh, in 2008, nine, when we didn't have a building and we spent a lot of time in studies out and about, um, having really good conversations with people. Uh, and one of the things I want to encourage you to remember as you were having conversations with one another, even, or people asking you questions is remember, what does the text say? I always got go back to what does the Bible actually say? Everybody has an opinion. Everybody is saying this and that, and they heard something from somebody on YouTube, but what does it say? And when you go look at what it says, it keeps you, keeps you where you're supposed to be. Amen? Y'all know that. All right, chapter 14 of Proverbs. Let's start reading at verse 8, uh, 28. Read through the end. We'll come back and we'll dive in. So if you're with me, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 28, please say amen. amen. And a multitude of people is a king's honor. But in the lack of people is the downfall of a prince. He who is slow to wrath has great understanding, but he who is impulsive exalts folly. A sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. He who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker, but he who honors him has mercy on the needy. The wicked is banished and is, I'm sorry. I hugged somebody and got thrown off really, excuse me. The wicked is banished in his wickedness, but the righteous has a refuge in death. Wisdom rests in the heart of him who has understanding. But what is in the heart of fools is made known. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. The king's favor is towards a wise servant, but his wrath is against him who causes shame. And just because I'm going to reference it in a few minutes, chapter 15, verse 1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And so, Lord, we do thank you this morning. We pray that you would speak to us, Lord by your spirit, and that you would remove from our hearts and minds anything that would hinder us, any care for this life or this world or the things of it that's passing away or distractions in the room even, and that we would be able to focus in on what you have to say by your spirit, that we would grow and be strengthened and further conform to your image. Lord Jesus, we love you and thank you. Amen. Amen. I think I'm, I don't know, hearing a bit of an echo again. Maybe it's a little loud. All right. So if you, oh, by the way, anybody visiting for the first time so I can know my audience. Hey, welcome. Welcome. That's quite a few of you. Okay. Whoa. All right. Well, welcome to Calvary. My name is Pastor Kevin. I hope to meet you. Please, uh, before you leave, I love this, this, at least shake your hand or hug your neck and thank you for being here with us. This section of the book of Proverbs, Proverbs, the book of wisdom. Many of you read through the book of Proverbs almost on a monthly basis, but one of the things that we are seeing in this section of scripture that we're in now, or this portion of the book of Proverbs, is that uh, a lot of these Proverbs are a little short, almost can stand on their own little truths that the Bible has given us, these contrasts, which is uh, contrasting often between the wicked and the righteous, for instance, and you see those things, or the wise and the fool, um, and all of those kind of things. And so we're learning a lot from it. Um, and as we approach this particular section of scripture, as I just read, there seems to almost be a little bit of a theme going on and Solomon being um, the king over Israel at the time and exhorting his children um, who technically is the royal family who may take over for him uh, at some point. He seems to be getting um, a 
clear understanding across, as we saw in verse 28, where it says, in a multitude of people is a king's honor, but in the lack of people is the downfall of the prince. Then you jump to verse 34, where he says, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to many people. And then verse 35, the king's favor is towards a wise servant, but his wrath is against him who causes shame. And there's developing almost a little bit of a theme as Solomon has given us truths that we can apply right down to our individual lives. But there seems to also be an overarching theme that relates to leadership from a, even a governmental standpoint. And so we see things that we have to consider, yet at the same time, the Bible uh, cautions us in how we do that. And so that's what I'll get into as we look at this. So first, verse 28, in a multitude of people is a king's honor. But in the lack of people is the downfall of a prince. And that makes sense. What is a kingdom without a king? And what is a kingdom without people? In fact, there is no kingdom without people because there is no need to govern at any level if there are no people to actually govern. In fact, the fact that there is a people that make up a kingdom necessitates the need to oversee and keep things in order. Um, in fact, even here where it says in the second part of the verse, the lack of people is a downfall of the prince. If the prince doesn't have a job, if there's no people in the kingdom, he's going to have to go find something else to do. Y'all, I mean, it's very practical. We understand that. But yet it goes even beyond as we begin to look at that. You know, you know Jesus even said the same thing. Pilate asked Jesus in the Gospels, he says, um, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus answered and says, well, look, my kingdom is not of this world. You can look at it later in your own time in John, John 18. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, my servants, the people of my kingdom, they would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. And I love that. Jesus is saying, listen, yes, I am a king and I am king of the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom will come. He told us to pray that thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. There's a heavenly kingdom that is coming and when does it come? When Jesus rides in on the white horse and he get, deals with the enemy. So that's futuristic. But as we look at this verse, in a multitude of people is a king's honor. I found it very interesting that this word honor in the Hebrew, it does mean, um, and I'm not going to try to pronounce the Hebrew, especially since I got a Jew who speaks Hebrew on the front row. I'm just going, <laughs> but, but it, it means uh, adornment, glory, uh, or holy adornment actually. Um, and that as of public worship. And here's the interesting thing. This particular Hebrew word is only used five times in all of the Bible, one of them being here. So it's not the normal honor. There's a specific thing that's being alluded to here, which I have to admit I'm still getting a grasp on. But I'm going to read to you the other four places that it's used and how it's used. And I'm not going to have you turn there because we'll be all over the place. But 1 Corinthians 16, 29, give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the beauty. That's 1 Chronicles, I'm sorry, 16, 29, in the beauty of holiness. Well, the Hebrew word that's translated honor in chapter 14 of Proverbs is uh, beauty in 1 Chronicles 16, 29. The beauty of holiness. thought that was interesting because it goes on in, in 2 Chronicles 20, 21 to say, and when he has consulted with the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord and that should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army and to say, praise the Lord for his mercy endure forever. The beauty of holiness again. And then I found it in Psalm 29 too. Give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord. Here it is again in the beauty of holiness. Psalm 96, 9. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. And then we get to Proverbs 14, 28. Where it says, and a multitude of people is the king's honor. And it's the same word. And there's something here that is happening, I believe, behind the text. Um, the Holy Spirit, who is God, by the way, 
I want to remind you of that. That's going to come in helpful when we do, when I answer the question for the ladies next Saturday morning at 10. The Holy Spirit is, is God. The, the question has to do with the restrainer being removed. And if that's the Holy Spirit, how can he be removed? And then people still get saved during the tribulation. But remember, he's God. He's not chained. Um, and so as, I want you to remember that one point. Now, I don't want to go there now. Um, so here's the thing. We got the God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Spirit. Same nature, same character, same agenda, same purpose, plan, uh, being in complete agreement and harmony with one another, never contradicting one another. Therefore, the Holy Spirit chose to move upon Solomon to use this particular word that in every other place is used to refer to the worship and praise of and honor of given to God from his saints and those who love him. And it's referred to in the beauty of holiness. And so there's something behind that. In other words, God loves receiving worship and honor due him from those who love him and trust in him. And it's in the beauty of holiness that he enjoys that. And that's a very interesting, the beauty of holiness. Well, how is holiness beautiful? Well, holiness is beautiful because holiness is pure and holiness is, 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 is something that's not tainted. And see, we have been made pure even though we're sinful. Yet he can make us pure so that we can stand before him and worship. In fact, I have to show you two places really quick. And we're going to turn a little bit today, not as much as previous weeks. But we're going to go to 1 Peter. Keep your place. You should have gotten one of those bookmarks out of the bookstore. But keep your place. Um, well, stop off. Why y'all laughing? Hey, there's nothing wrong. Hey, we should love the word and be passionate. It's okay. Stop off really quick, though, in, in Ephesians 1, just to remind you. In Ephesians 1, 4, it says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Y'all see that? Okay. All of you didn't see it because you're still turning. <laughs> But that was, that was Ephesians uh, 1, 4. So his, his, ho his whole point, I'll read it to you again. You're just arriving. Say amen when you get there this time. Amen. Okay. All right, we, we okay. We, we sluggish this morning. It's a rainy day. All right. I'll read it again. Just as he chose us in him because, before the foundation of the world. Okay. So before the foundation of the world, he chose us. But what was his goal? That, that we should be, what y'all? Holy. And without blame before him in love. That was what he was working towards. So even though we messed up, his plan was to get us before him holy. Now, Peter says in 1 Peter 1, I'm so sorry, those of you who don't like turning or whatever like that, you know, I'm so sorry, y'all. It's, it's just like people who don't like worship and go to church, you know. And, and, and in heaven, we're going to worship, you know. So, I mean, hey, it, it, the, 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 look, God's word is in the Bible. We have to go find it out. I mean, yeah, I mean, Pastors have spent too much time making us lazy by putting everything on the screens. All right. So verse, verse, first Peter one, two says he calls us notice elect according to the foreknowledge. There it is again of God. The father notice it's in the sanctification of the spirit. That's how we get to be holy. The spirit is sanctifying us, working on us, convicting us of sin, pointing us to the word. That's how we know we have a relationship with him. Right. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, according to Romans uh, eight, nine, and you don't even belong to God. Everybody good? Okay. So the sanctification of the spirit for obedience. So we're being sanctified that we can actually obey him. And then notice and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Why is that so beautiful? Because in the old Testament, the picture is everything is made holy by the sprinkling of the blood of the sacrifice. So even the priest himself has to sprinkle blood on his right ear, his right big toe and everything, his walk, his what he hears, his walk, his service, his hand, everything is sprinkled with blood to be made holy. God sees the blood and the blood reminds him that, oh, that's under the sacrifice according to how I required it from the law. Everybody good? So then we are symbolically sprinkled when we, get, when we get saved by the blood of Christ so that as God looks at us, he sees the blood of his son, which has been applied. And the blood of his son alone says everything's okay. That one's holy. And Satan's trying to accuse and God is like, nope, don't even need to listen to you. The blood of my son is applied 
this, this one's justified as if they never sinned. That's the picture. So, so there's beauty in holiness because we've come by way of the, the, of the faith in Jesus Christ and we stand before God and we're able to worship. Now, what does that really look like? This, the king receiving honor uh, from, from the people and what does that really look like? I think ultimately the, the perfect example is Christ. And I believe the Holy Spirit has this in mind. So now we're going to keep going to the right and we're going to land in Revelation 5, okay? Keep going to the right and just bear with me this morning. In Revelation 5, we went through this together on Sunday morning, probably in sometime in 2000, we wrapped up the book of Revelation. And in Revelation 5, we'll pick it up in verse 9, John caught up in to heaven in chapter 4, kind of a picture of the church being caught up. We see a new song being sung by the church in heaven. It says, and they sing a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll. So we're honoring and glorying God by singing, you're worthy. And to open its seals. Why? Well, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Now we know this is the singing of the church um, because angels are not redeemed. We know this, right? Out, right? Well, notice it's out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Isn't that beautiful? That means that there's a representation, not a representation, that every, everywhere on the planet where the gospel has gone and people who have been saved are now gathered before the throne. No distinctions made about anything down here. Isn't that beautiful? Okay. And have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on earth. Remember, Peter said the same thing, that you are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. So we're kings and priests unto our God and that we will reign with him. The scriptures already told us that. We know this. Verse 11, I looked and I heard and the voice of many angels around the throne and living creatures and the elders and the number of them, but check it out. The number of them was 10,000 times, 10,000s and thousands of thousands just singing. You know, Jude said the same thing when he quoted Enoch, that God, the Lord will return with 10,000. It's, it's basically an expression of it's a number nobody can number. It's just too big, too many people, right? We understand that. Now, so God is receiving honor and glory and worship, and it's in the beauty of holiness. Why? Because of the blood of Christ, we're all holy and before his throne, and we're singing to him, and he's receiving honor from the many peoples that are uh, amongst his church. Let's go to chapter 7. Now, in chapter 7, we see a whole different group before the throne singing. Chapter 7, verse 9 of Revelation, chapter 7, Revelation 7, 9 says, After these things, y'all okay? I look and behold a great multitude which no man could number. Now, what I told first service, it doesn't mean it can't be numbered or a number couldn't be known. It just, it's just an expression for you would be hard-pressed to try to number this group. It's almost like when God talked to Abraham about his descendants being as numerous as the sand of the sea. Well, it's not that the grains of the sand couldn't be numbered, but I mean, would you want to do it? <laughs> He's just trying to say this is a huge number. God knows the number, but we could never number it. We would see it and it, our eyes couldn't even fathom it is what he's saying. Of all nations and peoples and tongues, here it is again, a big group from all over the world standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands. And notice they're crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The song seems a little different than the song that was sung in chapter 5. And it says, and all the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. They're honoring him, saying, Amen, blessings and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Now, then one of the elders answered, saying to me, who are these arrayed in white robes and where did they come from? Why is he asking John this question? I mean, John is an apostle of the Christian church. Why is he asking John about this group of people? And then look at John. John said in verse 14, sir, you know, John doesn't know. So he doesn't try to answer well, wait a minute, John knows the church. So what, what, what is this, this isn't the church. This is a distinct group because the uh, elder says to him, these are the ones who came out of the what, y'all? Great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. They are a distinct group. They came to Christ 
but they went through the fire and they were brought out of the great tribulation. But they are before the throne and they came from every nation, tribe and tongue on the earth during the tribulation period. And why did they die? Why did they go through the fire? Well, because the Bible says in Daniel and Revelation that the Antichrist has the power to prevail against the saints during the tribulation. And so those who come to faith get their heads taken off their necks, most likely, most, most often. Um, and so it's a different group, but again, before the throne, worshiping him. Now, and Pastor Kevin, we're in Proverbs 14. How do we end up all the way in Revelation? So let's go back to Proverbs. <laughs> so there's this thing going on here that I love where the implication seems to be something to the effect that a king is set up or allowed by God for a purpose to whom much is given. You know, the Bible says much is required. Y'all have heard that verse? A king is meant, governed authorities are set up by God. They are meant to be a blessing to the people that they are over while honoring God. Jesus, again, the ultimate example. You see, Jesus sacrificed himself for those whom he loves and brings into his kingdom. And he loves them like, you know, because he's God. It's a perfect love. We then give honor to him through the beauty of, through praise and the beauty of holiness right back to him because that's what heaven is like. Heaven, we see the king of glory and we're overwhelmed and fall to the ground. Over and over and over, you see that pattern in Revelation. There he is. Man, I'm only here because of him. Those nail holes in his wrist, that's what paid for my ticket. And I fall to the ground and I'm worshiping him, I'm worshiping him, I'm worshiping him. And that's what we're going to see. And so when we look at this, it's almost as if Solomon being moved by the Spirit is saying that there needs to be a righteousness and a fear inside of the king if he's going to rule over the people because he's responsible to God and he gets honor and glory from them and they're only going to honor him if he's good to them. And see, this is the thing. When you back up to verse 27 where it says in, in Proverbs, where we are, where it says the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. You see that? To turn one away, to turn one away from the snares of death. It's almost as if he's saying that a king even needs to fear the Lord in order to rule over the subjects within his kingdom, that he will bring honor to his God. And we're going to see that and we get to, and we get, as we get over to verse 34. A fear, a fear. Listen, this is what we've been seeing in the book of Proverbs. It says in Proverbs 3, 7, do not be wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord and depart from evil. Proverbs 1, 7 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And Proverbs 9, 10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Psalm 25, 14 says, the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him. I like that verse. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him. There's a, there's a secretness that we have, we know, we understand, we gain knowledge of because we fear him. And he will show them his covenant. Psalm 34, 9 says, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. There seems to be an implication here again that the king needs to have a fear of the Lord in order to honor the Lord and how he carries his task out. And we're going to come back to that thought in a minute. All right? Y'all doing okay? All right, let's knock out some of these other verses where it says in verse, uh, chapter uh, 14, verse 29, he who is slow to wrath has great understanding, but he who is impulsive exalts folly. And I think the Holy Spirit at this point of Solomon writing the book of Proverbs was dealing with Solomon even in his position as king. Because Solomon understands this, that when you are quick to wrath, you're going to make a mistake, you're going to hurt someone, and the consequences are serious. And so uh, we are told even in the New Testament in James chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, y'all know these verses. It says, so then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Uh, likewise, in chapter 15 of Proverbs, verse 1, just a few verses over, where it says a soft answer turns away wrath. And these relational things that we're looking at is pointing us to the fact that we need to be patient and calm 
and, and surrender to the spirit of God as we are dealing with one another, particularly if we are in leadership. Because it says, he who is slow to wrath, this is the one who has great understanding. Because when you're impulsive, you're actually exalting or lifting up foolishness and proving yourself to be acting foolish. Because when you fly off the handle, when your fuse is short, you're always going to make a mistake. You're always going to draw the wrong attention to yourself. And you're always going to point out the fact that you are not operating in the wisdom of God. A parent can't discipline a child without patience and wisdom and the fear of God so that we're not quick to wrath. A husband has to be patient and, and calm in the wisdom of God when speaking to his wife and a wife to her husband or a business owner to an employee or a, uh, a boss to an employee even on the job or an employee up, no matter what the situation is. The fear of the Lord should call us to be careful with who we're dealing with in the position that we occupy because we are servants of the Most High. And so Solomon has this in his heart, I believe, as king. And maybe even more so, he's trying to teach his sons who would take over and not listen to this wisdom and split the kingdom. There's some important lessons here. Verse 30, a sound heart, notice. A healthy heart is life to the body, but envy, which is a fruit of the flesh, is rottenness to the bone. This is a very good contrast. Life or rot rottenness? I mean, which one do you want inside yourself? Now, practically, it looks as if he's speaking of the heart, which is the engine of the body. It pumps blood throughout the body. We need it. That's how oxygen moves throughout the body. That's how the various cells that do various things get from one place to another because the heart is pumping blood throughout the body, right? We understand this. When the heart has issues, it's going to affect all types of areas within the body because it's going to reduce the things that need to get to where it's going. Nutrients, food, oxygen, all these things are getting delayed or hindered when the heart is not pumping right, but Solomon's not talking about the physical heart in that way. He's speaking of the innermost part of our being, where our soul is and where our, our thoughts and our, 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 what we're giving to, all of those things where there are, this is what he's getting at. And this is what Jesus was getting at in the New Testament. Jesus said in Matthew 12, I'm just going to read it. He says, either make the tree good or its fruit good or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Then he says, brood of vipers, which I always love. He's talking to the Pharisees. How can you being evil speak good things? And then he says this, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasures of his heart brings forth good things. An evil man out of the evil treasures of his heart brings forth evil things. And so he says we need to guard these things. And Jesus said at the Sermon on the Mount, he says, whoever is angry with his brother is in danger of this. And then in the next place he says, but I say to you that whoever looks on a woman to lust after her, or I can turn and say to a woman, whoever looks at a man to lust after him, the bottom line is they commit adultery, but the Bible says, Jesus says, within his heart. So evidently there's some things going on in the heart that are way more dangerous than what we actually are doing physically. If you back up a few chapters to chapter 4, where Solomon was hitting it from, from this same angle there, and we're going to pick it up in verse 20. It should just be a couple pages flipped. Proverbs 4.20 says, My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. He's saying, pay attention to my very word. For us, it means the word of God. He says, do not let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your what? Now, this is big. He's not even saying just have memory verses up here in your head. Because, you know, y'all know how it is. I mean, stuff can get up here, but somehow it doesn't always filter down. You know, um, and then it's crazy how stuff I heard in 1986 in the heart of the, 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 the old school rap is still in there. It's, it's settled down in there somewhere. So this is interesting, Okay. So he says, keep them in the midst of your heart, verse 22, for they are life to those who find them and health to their flesh, notice he says. 
And so he says, keep your heart, verse 23, or guard it with all diligence for out of it springs the issues of life. And so this is a concern because in, in our text where we are, keep your finger back there too, a sound heart is a life to the body. But then over in chapter four, he says this thing, it's health to your flesh. And he says it over and over and over. Back up with me to chapter three of Proverbs. He says, chapter three, verse one, my son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commandments for notice length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. Chapter three, verse eight, he says, um, uh, yeah, verse seven says, do not be wise in your own heart. Fear the Lord, depart from evil. It will be what? Help to your flesh and strength to your bones and on and on and on and on. There's so many of these in the book of Proverbs. Evidently, Evidently, especially in the New Testament where we're spirit beings, what's going on in the depths of the heart is the seat. Literally, it's what's driving everything else, even our physical and mental health. And this is why we have to be so careful to guard what comes in here because we got these doorways, eyes, ears, you know what I'm saying? Things we're experiencing. And then what are we entertaining and so what the Bible is calling us to do is be a little bit more sharp at, in guarding those areas. Like, in other words, if this, is, if this was very vulnerable and something could get down through your eye or your ear that could cause an infection that could literally take your life, then you would probably wear some type of protection over your eyes and your ears, wouldn't you? Well, that's exactly what the Bible is saying. Guard it with the word of God to prevent infective things from getting in you and causing your being to be defiled by the things of the world. So guard your heart. If you find yourself entertaining things within your mind, this is why the Bible says casting down thoughts and imaginations, you got to go to battle. You got to say, man, this thing is trying to take root in me. And, you, and the Holy Spirit is, is saying, be careful. Don't let that happen. And you think you could just play with it and entertain it. And, and the Holy Spirit, who is your best friend when you're born again, he says, hey, hey, bring them thoughts back. Even your thoughts, yes. In other, nobody knows what you're dealing with. Nobody knows what you're entertaining. Nobody knows. And the Holy Spirit will say, I, I, don't, don't play around with that thought. That thought, that thought of how you view that other person because you don't like them or that, or that lustful thought or whatever it might be, the Holy Spirit is saying, hey, check that before that turns into something because it always starts there. And those, the, what comes in, what's entertained, and then it takes root and settles down. And then, then by the time you actually perform a sinful act, it's already been down in there for a while, permeating and changing the internal environment. And so a sound heart is what he's talking about here in verse 30 of chapter 14. is life to the body in every way. But envy, which is kind of a fruit of the flesh, is rottenness to the bone, so to the bones. So Solomon is, is warning us of these things uh, over and over in order. Verse 31, all right. Verse 31 says, he who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker, but he who honors him has mercy on the needy. I love this. In other words, Solomon, again, the king, I think is being convicted by the Holy Spirit as he's writing. Solomon, I believe personally, he was struggling as he's, as he's writing these things down and God is dealing with him and he's trying to teach his children. You ever, you ever notice that in your own life? What God is dealing with you on is what's fresh in your mind and you're sharing it with other people, you know, but it's really meant for you. The message is always for the messenger first. Anyway, um, you're thinking, man, if that one person who needs to hear this was here and that one person is you. So the person who needs to hear this is here this morning, but this is what he's getting at. He, he's saying that he who oppresses the poor reproaches his maker and he who honors his maker is what he's saying here has mercy on the needy. So an indication that we are honoring our maker is if we actually have mercy on those who are in need. He who oppresses the poor, they afflict the poor. They make their situation more difficult. Um, they don't have mercy on them. And therefore, they are a reproach to his or her maker. Now, why are they a reproach to his or her maker? And why are they serving the maker when they have mercy on the poor or the needy? Well, it's because, check it out, it's because in our worldly view of things, we have a tendency 
to subdivide ourselves as human beings in all of these various categories and we can we can lift some up and we can put some down based upon whether it's economic status or uh uh, you know, national, nationality or if it's color of skin. I mean, you look at the world, it's that way almost in every culture to some degree. Yet what the Bible is saying is that sin because every human being was actually made in the image of God in that God said in Genesis 1:26 that let us make man in our image and in our likeness and it goes on to say male and female he created them but they're made in his image so he made the two that were two different genders one so that they could produce a godly offspring and populate the earth and bring him glory so then when we look down on any human being as less than being made in the image of God, we expose our sinful nature that is within us. And this is permeated throughout. I think Solomon was dealing with this and he was trying to tell his children not to do this, but this is the reality that we are faced with in this fallen world. And so it's being called out. We reproach our maker because he made us all equal. And he didn't make any better than others or less than others. He didn't do that. It's amazing the, the stinking worldview that we have. You know, you grow up as a kid and you see it, you know, and then you go, you go to Miss Hornet's fourth grade class and she's got this picture of these apes standing up and saying, that's where I came from, the dumbest thing I ever made. She was a mean woman too. Because <laughs> back when I was in school, the teachers could paddle you actually. So she was mean and she had a yardstick and she'd take that hand back and, you know, mean, you know. But, and then, and she's an evolutionist too. That's why she wasn't happy. Because she didn't come from nothing in her estimation, so she ain't going to nothing. But anyway, so we got all these, these, these uh, harmful, sinful, demonic views, which can cause us to actually look at someone as less than being made in the image of God. And the problem with that is it causes us to either treat them a certain way or just be hands off and not worry about it. And so this is being called out. The king can't be this way, but then none of us can be this way. So let's continue and we'll put it all together. Verse 32. Verse 32 says, the wicked is banished in his wickedness, but the righteous has a refuge in his death. That's a very simple verse. So, um, ultimately God is the one who is righteous and he makes these judgments. So the wicked are banished. Um, those who are wicked are not righteous. So therefore they haven't come to God on the basis of the terms he set, which are very simple terms. Man likes to, man likes religion because religion is a list of things you can try to check off. Right? So we like that as men, uh, as human beings, God says, you know, you, you guys are already sinful from the beginning. So even if you try to do good works, it ain't going to matter. I'm going to get into that in a moment. So therefore, God says, hey, it's a very simple thing, faith in my son, Jesus Christ. Okay? So the wicked will be banished into hell, and hell will be delivered into the lake of fire at the great white throne judgment. But the righteous, he says here, even in his death, he has a refuge in the Lord. I'm going to come back to that in verse 34. All right, verse 33. Verse 33 says, wisdom rests in the heart of him who has understanding. Very simple verse. But what is in the heart of fools will be made known. So if you hang around a fool long enough, it will be evident that they are a fool because it will be made known. Uh, but wisdom, it rests with, it rests in, it's with those who have understanding. Verse 34. This is a verse that the church knows very well. And notice it says, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And I imagine as Solomon is writing this, having talked about the fear of the Lord, having talked about the people, uh, this word glory uh, being given back to the king, if you will, which is a picture of, of us worshiping Christ, in my opinion, and all of these things. And he lands here and says, righteousness exalts a nation. But sin is a reproach to any people, is a shame. So we, the church, can look at this verse most often, and we use this as a justification or a place of judgment against the secular society that we live in, and in particular, its leadership, as, as though we have a place to do that. 
And I think that we are missing the point. Now, on the surface, before I go into that, righteousness exalts a nation because the fruit of righteousness is going to be a covering in favor from God. That's just what it is. But here, what we need to do then is ask the question, how can a nation be righteous? You ever thought about that? How can a nation be righteous? Or better yet, where is the righteousness within a nation? Well, it can only come from those who are deemed to be righteous. Well, then who's deemed to be righteous? I mean, what's the reality? I mean, who's righteous? Let's go to Romans chapter 3. I'm going to record this one day and play this when I sleep. Like the turning of pages is soothing. Yeah. Turning of Bible pages. In Romans 3, who's righteous? I mean, I'm going to read you some of this. I want you to see this. And I probably. Somebody said, wait up. Okay. All right. All right. It's to the right. Way to the right. I'm sorry. Romans 3. Wear your pages out. I mean, so when you wear your Bible out really good, you can almost just hold it and it falls where it's supposed to. Almost. You get close enough. All right. So we're going to wear this thing out. Okay. Now, Romans 3. Let's pick it up in verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous. There's the answer to our question. There is none righteous. No, not one. He goes on to say, there, there is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. Whoa, nobody even seeks after God? And Jesus says, nobody comes to me unless they're drawn by my Father, which is a work of the Holy Spirit, the conviction of the Spirit. So there's none righteous and nobody seeking God? Then it says, they have all turned aside. They have all together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. Imagine what their breath smells like. <laughs> With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asp are, are under their lips. That's a poisonous viper. Whose mouth is full of cursings and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. And check it out. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I mean, you start wondering, why are we doing the things we're doing? It's because as a nation or within the world, it's because there is no fear of God. Okay? Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. In other words, there is none righteous, and those who are going to try to keep the law or work and keep a list of rules are going to fail because the list is only there to let you know that you are in sin, according to Galatians, and in need of a Savior. Okay? So whenever I look to the law to try to make myself feel like I'm doing something, I only get exposed that I'm not. Okay? So then, well, where's the righteous then? Who's righteous? Verse 21. Y'all with me? Yes, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. I love those verses. In other words, he says that the righteousness of God has appeared apart from the law, and the very law itself is the witness of it. Well, what does that mean? Well, it simply means this. The law made a requirement, and Jesus fulfilled it. So the law is witnessing to the fact that Jesus is the only one who's righteous. Well, what do you mean? Well, the sacrifice has to be without spot and blemish. Blood has to be shed of an innocent sacrifice uh, to pay for sin. So nobody could do that but Jesus himself. You follow me? And Jesus showed up. If you look at the law, um, anyway, we, we could spend forever on that. We'll wait to the school of ministry. So, whoa. So righteousness, the righteousness of God has finally appeared 
And it's that the righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ, and it's for all who believe no distinction. He goes on to say, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So every human being is in one category, sinful and have fallen short of God. And the only way to be righteous is through faith in Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood, meaning he paid the price for our sin, by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be justified and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He goes on down there later to even say this, that even Abraham has nothing that he can boast about. If I read it, we'll be here too long. That not even Abraham can boast. In fact, he says, we got to look at it, chapter 4, verse 1, what then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has, a, has, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he would have something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. But what did Abraham believe? You can find it in Galatians chapter 3. The Bible says in Galatians that the gospel was preached to Abraham that through his seed the earth would be blessed. Abraham understood what that meant is that from his lineage would come the one that was promised in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 which would be the Messiah that he would right all the wrongs and bring an end to the transgression of Adam. You follow me? So Abraham understood and believed in the promised seed, the plan of God that one would come which is now we know to be Jesus Christ. So Abraham got saved even the same way we did. That means every human being who is ever deemed to be righteous is only deemed so through faith in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. So then when we go back and we look at Proverbs now, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin brings a reproach. So I want to caution us today as Christians. It's easy to point the finger at the government and the secular world. The problem is when you point one finger, you already got three pointing back at you. The only ones that are righteous on the planet are those who have faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the church. And therefore, if the church is the righteousness of God in the earth, then it's the, listen, it's the church being who we are called to be in, in, in this nation that will exalt it before God. And so the problem is the church here in America, we, we've lost something. We've settled down and gotten settled in our places and in our divisions. And we're no longer operating the way we're supposed to be operating. The first century church turned the world upside down. If you read it in Acts chapter 2, because of their fervency for Christ and their fervent love for one another and their fellowship. And it was on display for the world to see. And, and because they saw that, they had an impact like you wouldn't believe on the world. But see, here's the thing. We've settled down into this secular society. Right now, at this very moment, Johnson County and even Clayton, we are completely segregated. Not Calvary Chapel, Clayton so much, but we're segregated. I can give you, I can name a handful of African-American churches down the street. I can name, we're on live stream, so I won't do it. I don't want to offend anybody. I can name a handful of, uh, uh, you know, I guess Caucasian churches down the street and everybody's segregated and here we are the church and we don't even seem to be able to actually um, love each other sometimes. So it's hard, it's hard for us to point the finger at the world, right? So, so we've got to always remember that, that wait a minute, we have the power through the preaching of the gospel, but even more important, if you season that with some salt, what do I mean? By the fervent love that we have for him and how we display that with one another. Y'all with me? And um, I don't know, somebody set their clock on me, um, you know. Was that a duck? You know what you do with a duck. <laughs> 12 gauge, you know. 
So what we have to understand is, listen, here's the thing. Yes, judgment is coming. Yes, it's coming, but we don't glory in that. So what we do is we love each other. And Calvary Clayton, y'all have a, a wonderful opportunity to do this. I mean, you know, this unity we have as far as if you look around the room, the, 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 the diversity of places and economic statuses and color of skin is wonderful. And it works out really good when the potlucks happen because you get to experience all these various things. But beyond all of that, it's how we break bread with one another. You know, when we meet out in the different places and we're, we're praying together and we're having discussions about Bible together, I encourage you, you should do that. Break bread with one another. Hear each other's testimony. Reason through the scripture and then pray with one another. When that happens, you know, because we do that in restaurants and places and people are getting Bible lessons because the Holy Spirit has a way of turning up the volume when we're trying to be quiet, but we're going through the word down the street at the, at the Boulevard West. And he's amplifying the discussion because it's his word. He has a way of doing that. Judgment is coming. I'm going to show you all one last thing before we turn. Um, Ezekiel 14 and then Ezekiel 33 and we'll close. Here's the reality. Righteousness exalts the nation, but sin brings a reproach. Yes, that's absolutely true. And sin is going to bring shame and it's going to bring a reproach, but it's also going to bring judgment. And what should the church be doing being that we know judgment's coming? Like we know the, we have the, we have the answer key to the test. You follow what I'm saying? So what's going to happen? Well, Ezekiel 14, 12 says, the word, of the, the word of the Lord came to me again saying, Son of man, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I've shared this with you before. He's saying a land, a nation, a people. Not just, he's not just dealing with Israel and Judah now. Obviously, they're getting judged for their unfaithfulness to him. But he says, a land, persistent unfaithfulness. He says, I will stretch out my hand against it. I will cut off its supply of bread, send famine on it. I thought about this when Russia attacked Ukraine, because Ukraine is called the breadbasket of Europe. And I thought about that. They're getting attacked and, you know, the, you know, the cut off the supply of bread. Made me go to this verse, which is very interesting. Um... In fact, I was telling first service, their bread is healthier than our bread because they use a different grain. The grain that we use, the type of bread we use here, I think I've heard is illegal there because what we eat pr produces more uh, inflammation within your body. So the bread you're buying on our grocery store shelves is actually not good for you. <laughs> That's a whole nother lesson. Um, I'm trying to figure out how to order uh, from, from Europe. But anyway, <laughs> he says, I will cut off its supply of bread. I will send famine on it. And I will cut off man and beast from it. And even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God. Now, what do we know about Daniel, Noah, and uh, who was it, Noah, Daniel, and Job? Well, these were preachers of righteousness, and they would only be delivered. In other words, because the, the common theme throughout Scripture is God always delivers the righteous before the judgment or the wrath comes. And that's what 1 Thessalonians 1.10 tells us. So the biblical common theme, Genesis through Revelation, is God removes his saints prior to his wrath coming upon people in that way, okay? So now, so this is what it's saying. Any land, well, as we look out on the horizon, spiritually, prophetically, judgment is on the way. Judgment is on the way. And I think there's some things going on. I really, one more place, chapter 33 of Ezekiel. What should we do? Y'all bear with me. I'm really trying to end. What should we be about in the times we live in? Well, chapter 33, we're going to read a few verses. I'm just going to read quickly. Quickly, I'm going to read, starting in verse 1. As you're turning, again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, if you're struggling, by the way, um, Proverbs, Ezekiel's to the right. And it's, what's, it's in the section of Scripture called the prophets, the major prophets. So I think you got Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. All right, chapter 33, verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of, the children of your people and say to them, when, it, when I bring the sword upon the land and the people of the land take a man from their territory and make him their watchman. The, the tradition was every nation, every city had watchmen. And sometimes they would have multiple watchmen, which would send a signal 
to one and he would signal the other and you could cover miles this way to warn those in the city, hey, the enemy is on the way. There's an army approaching, lock up the gates and stuff, okay? He goes on to say, when, you, when he sees the sword coming upon the land, if he blows the trumpet and warns the people, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, if the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. In other words, the watchmen warned, they ignored the warning, so it's on them, okay? Um, he heard the sound of the trumpet, verse 5, and did not take warning, his blood shall be upon himself, but he who takes the warning will save his life. Verse 6, but if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet and the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any person from among them, his, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. In other words, God says, hey, the watchman's got to do his job, okay? Now, verse 7, so you, son of man, talking to Ezekiel, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them. That was the job of the prophet and particularly the watchman. Hear the word of the Lord, warn the people. Y'all catch that? Okay, now thank God this is New Testament and the spirit works differently. However, I do believe that as we draw closer to things and move further into time, the church is going to have to perform the role of a watchman more and more in that we need to be very open with a proclamation of the word of God, not only concerning the time we live in now, but what's coming on the horizon. And I do believe that what's coming on the horizon, and as a pastor, I say this, I do believe that we're going to see a little bit more uh, persecution happen. You know, back in 2020, when the government was overreaching, um, you know, the pastors had to be a little bit bold. We felt this urgency to be bold. You know, the CDC just came out with the fact that the vaccines don't even matter now. You know, I was like, man, so you mean we, you took us through all of that foolishness? You know, which is, anyway. So I guess what I'm saying is, you know, what we have to do is we have to be people who understand what Scripture says and we know what, what we're expecting to come towards us as we move further into the last days and we have to be people who can very calmly, with a sense of peace, which is ruling in our hearts, tell people that, you know what? The reason I'm not worried is because of the promises of my Lord in the scripture. And the reason you're worried is because you don't know him and you need to turn to him because his plans for us are magnificent. And, 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 and yes, the world is going to burn with the fervent heat, according to Peter. Yes, judgment is coming to the world. Absolutely. All of that's going to happen <laughs> and, and so much more. But God's plans for his bride, his church is beautiful and he's given it to us in scripture. He does not want us to be ignorant concerning these things. And so therefore he shed light on it for us. And, and you can it's just from there, you can encourage and exhort the people who need to hear these truths about God's plans. Amen. You can look somebody in the face who's on their deathbed and, and have the assurance of scripture. And I've done this to be able to say, you don't have to worry. Oh, let me read you what it says in chapter 21 of Revelation, and I've done that, where it talks about no, no more crying, no more pain, no more death, and being before God, we being his people, and he being our God, and dwelling in our, in our midst. You know the kind of comfort that brings to somebody that's about to see that reality? It helps them get, get across the, the, the thing. It helps them let go of the struggle and just go on and enjoy the presence of the Lord. So we have the only hopeful message on earth. There is no other message. There is no other path. There's one way. Y'all got saved in the 60s, used to say. Y'all used to walk around with the one way. Anybody do that? Anybody here actually do that? Yeah, see? Raise your hand, Daniel. Daniel used to do the one way. That's one way. That's how Christians would, would worship from across the parking lot, you know, because they understood something. I know now y'all think it's corny, but, I mean, that was real to them, and it is still real. And so there's some hippies in the room. I see them. Um, and, and standing against the wall, there's a few hippies. I don't want to look at them. So we, um, <laughs> we <laughs> I'm just picking on y'all, but it, the reality is that uh, we have to remember, as Calvary Chapel of Clayton at least, I want to leave you with this. Get to know those around you. Let those relationships be more real than any other. 
because that's eternal. Amen? It's eternal. Let there be no divisions among us. Let us all yield to the Lord and humble ourselves. Let's pray. Father, thank you for allowing us to be here today. I pray you would go before us this week, Lord. Watch over our homes, our cars. I pray that there would be uh, a protection over the body, Lord God. Give us wisdom and discernment as we need it. Lord, help us to remember to to yield to you, to acknowledge you uh, in all our ways that you would direct our paths. Until we meet again, in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Let's sing.